the freedom we have just to be here together openly. Thank you for the preservation of your word. I thank you the fact that your word transcends time, culture, language, and that this letter that you've written through the hands of James to reach the people then 2,000 years ago is still as relevant and applicable for us today. So, Lord, I pray that you would just allow us to take all the weights, the burdens, the distractions off of us, at least, if not, but for an hour. So we can focus on your word and focus on the spirit, reaching, teaching, encouraging, and just uh, moving in our lives so that we can represent you better, clearer, or continued in this world we live in today. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So... Tonight we'll be in James chapter 1, starting in verse number 21. And before I get into that, I do want to go ahead and preface. There's a couple verses in here that are very common, uh, commonly known, understood. And one of the hardest parts anybody that's ever preached or taught Scripture before is taking these very common, well-known passages and bringing any new information, if you will, to light from them, or trying to explain them in a way that's different from what you may have heard them before. And so the whole fact that we spent, actually this is week six in the book of James, and we're still in chapter one, I think that was very purposeful because what we've done thus far is we've laid the backdrop into James. We clearly understood who the audience was, what the purpose of the letter was, what the situation was, with these 12 tribes of Israel and the Jewish Christians. So we spent a considerable amount of time talking about their trials, their struggles, who they were, the fact that they were Christians, and then looking at the fact of the temptations that they were facing in the midst of the trials were not of God, but they were of themselves trying to go ahead and either manipulate situations or uh, try to change their outcome, if you will, through the flesh. And we talked a lot about that. And so I think all six weeks, or five weeks at least, were very pivotal in to explain the background, the backdrop, so that we can now get into the practical understanding and application of the book of James. You heard me say it before, once we get into James chapter 2, the only thing people ever know about the book of James is James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. And the reason why I hit it so hard is because that's the only thing people really ever know about the book of James. And with that being said, most people highly and grossly misunderstand, misinterpret, and therefore misapply God's word to our life. And so you've heard me say it once, hear me say it a thousand times. If this is God's written revelation to mankind and is just as applicable to us today as it was to them 2,000 years ago, we do well to make sure it's interpreted correctly. We talked about the literal, grammatical, historical context, understanding it literally, understanding it grammatically, and understanding it historically, so that we can know what did it mean to them then. Because if we can interpret it accurately, what did it mean to them, then we can figure out what the principle is and apply that principle to us today. If we don't do that, then we're going to have bad interpretation which leads to bad application. And so we're going to wonder, God, why aren't you delivering me from this? Because we're divorcing a text from its context, and we're trying to claim God has promised us something he's never promised us. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I have plans to prosper you and give you peace and expected end. He's talking about Babylonian captivity. He's talking to Israel. And so there's a difference. We have to understand it. Otherwise, we're going to misapply it and wonder, God, why aren't you answering my prayers? And so the last five weeks up to now was a lot of background information because it's very important to go on through the rest of the book. And so what I want to look at tonight is verses 21 through 27. And we're going to start here in verse 21 in James chapter 1, where James writes, Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. And so the first thing I want to talk about is this actual verse, what's happening. So here James is writing through the Spirit of God to lay apart a couple things. He's supposed to lay apart, the Christians are supposed to lay apart filthiness, as well as what's known as superfluity of naughtiness. Now superfluity is simply a, an old English word that we don't use anymore. Basically it means a superabundance, okay? And so when we're looking at these words in the Greek, you can see what they actually mean. Vileness the filth, if you will, that we carry around from iniquity, and then the aspect of having wickedness in our actions and in our life and in our conduct. And so James is telling these Christians here that they are to lay apart 
this filthiness and this superfluity of naughtiness. So what's interesting is when we look at this, to remove, in the Greek you have a couple different voices. You have an active voice, which is the subjects taking the action upon the object. You have the passive voice, where the object is taking action upon the subject. And then you have what's known as the middle voice. And we really don't have a clear English equivalent of middle voice, but the best I can really explain it is the subject is taking an action upon itself. Okay? And in other words, so with this right here, to lay apart, when James is telling these Christians to lay apart filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, he's telling them they have to remove this from themselves. They're supposed to remove this wickedness from themselves. Now, people will say, hold up, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he paid for our sins, past, present, and future, right? That is 100% accurate. But what happens is the fact that we, we ignore what's known as positional sanctification and practical sanctification. The two differences is positional sanctification, sanctification meaning to be set apart, basically means positionally we were set apart, placed in God's family the moment we turned to Christ for everlasting life. We were positionally sanctified. Whenever you hear the term sanctification, most people think, okay, it's just the aspect of becoming more Christ-like. And that's true. That's called practical sanctification. This is like in 1 John chapter 1, verse number 9, where John writes that we need to pray and, and confess our sins, ask for forgiveness so that he can cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So as we go about our daily lives, if we commit a sin, then we are naturally bringing that sin to filth on ourselves. Now, in a positional standing, God doesn't see us in our sin, in our wickedness, because positionally, he sees us with the righteousness of Christ. But when we're going through our day-to-day life, and if, if I'm taking this temptation over here, like James talked about in verse 13, and I'm succumbing to it with the flesh and the evil desires and inclinations, I'm taking the filth of that sin practically on myself. That's why in the New Testament, it commonly says, you know, make sure that you are spotless and blameless. This is a practical sense, not a positional sense. Right off the bat here in this verse, it reveals the fact that Christians can have wickedness in their life. It's not automatic that a Christian is going to persevere in good works. And this is something that's counter to the lordship or the Calvinist uh, theology that teaches that once you get saved, or before you get saved, you have to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit so that you have the ability to receive the gift, if you will. And then from there, Second Corinthians 5.17, you're a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And they teach in Second Corinthians 5.17, it's saying you will not have this disposition to sin like that anymore. But my argument, if, if that's the case, not only here in verse number 21 of the book of James, but numerous other places we'll see passages is there this aspect that Paul is saying, and James is saying, you need to stop doing this. You need to stop doing this. So we'll look at this in Ephesians, Colossians, passages of that. And so right off the bat, something is going on with these Christians through their trials, through their struggles, that James is having to tell them, because of all this, remember, you need to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, slow to wrath. Because of all that, he says, therefore, you have to lay apart, remove all these things. So they're supposed to do two actions. One here, they're supposed to lay apart. They're supposed to remove this stuff, practically speaking, from when they're going through their daily lives, go to God and ask for forgiveness for the sins that we committed. Yes, they're covered under the blood of Christ, but for fellowship. Because if your child is going to do something against you, disobey, they're still going to be in your family but your fellowship's going to be somewhat broken because they disobeyed and they didn't follow your orders or your will, whatever the case is. So that's what this is talking about. Not only are they supposed to remove, they're also supposed to receive. So you have a removal, then you have a receiving here in verse number 21. And it says to receive what? With meekness. Okay, now this receive isn't just open hands, hey, I'm going to receive it. It's actually agreeing with it, if you will, in your mind, and to agree with it with meekness and humility. 
And so I can look at this sort of like interventions. If you've ever been a part of an intervention when somebody is, maybe they're an alcoholic and they don't realize the fact that they're an alcoholic and their, their life and their family is going downward. So you have this intervention because you're trying to get them to realize the depth of their sin and their wickedness. So everybody's there for an intervention. But the person that's in the middle of it that's having the struggle, they don't realize there's a problem. And so it's this aspect that they need to be able to receive assent to, to believe and agree with in humility, to realize, you know what, I may be wrong about this. I need to be humble to be able to accept this and to be able to change. So they're supposed to remove this filth, this wickedness, and to receive with meekness what? The engrafted word. And so when you get this aspect of engrafted, it simply means implanted. Now, if you were to read a couple of Psalms there, Psalm 119, one, uh, 1 and 2, Psalm 37, 31, 40, verse 8, Proverbs uh, 2, 1, and then 10 through 11, there's this aspect of having the Word of God in our hearts, right? So you hear the, the Psalm where it says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee, right? And so you get this aspect of having the Word of God implanted in our being, in our soul, in our heart. And then we get in Colossians chapter 3, verse number 18, where Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And so there's this aspect of when they're confronted, and when you and I are confronted, we need to go ahead and put off the sin that's in our lives, the wickedness that we're doing, and it may not be wickedness to you or I, but we have to realize the fact that even a small amount of sin is wickedness to God. You know, so while, while this lie here may not have hurt anybody, it's still sin and missing the mark, transgression, if you will, in God's eyes. So it's a big deal to God. And I don't think a lot of times in the church or Christians as a whole really get the concept that even a little bit of sin is a big deal to God for that fellowship aspect. Not relational, but fellowship. So he's saying you need to receive with meekness, with humility, the engrafted word, the word of God that's implanted in your soul. And I think he's talking about really at this point in time, because this is an early letter to the church, I think he's talking about the Old Testament, the scriptures that they had, looking at the Psalms and different aspects like that. He says this engrafted word is able to save your souls. And so there's a couple of things I want to really park here for a quick minute. This word souls, I want to ask, you know, in your mind, what is soul according to Scripture? When you, when you see the word soul, it's, uh, the Greek word is suke. Uh, what is soul to you? What have you understood it to be? Spirit. Spirit, like the immaterial part that is immortal. Okay. Any other thoughts? What do you mean? Okay. You said the word was suke. We get our word psychologist from. Okay. Which, you know, it's not our flesh. I think that a man is a three part being. Okay, yep. You know, body, soul, and spirit. Right. Okay, right. You know, like when Christ died, mm-hmm. his spirit went up to the Father. Okay. His soul went down into Abraham's bosom. Okay. Uh, and I don't know, I just, uh, in this sense here, save your souls, I think if he's talking about physical life, like you have his word there. A lot of times in the Old Testament, the word soul and body mm-hmm. is used interchangeably. Mm-hmm. Oh, my soul. soul. You know, uh, and she knows what that means, and you know what that means. What is this? Song of Solomon says, I have found the one who my soul loves. Yeah. Yep. I, just, I think it's your state of emotions, basically. Uh, so. I think it goes more than that. It, it accomplishes your will. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. has to be brought into subjection to 
our heart. Right. Yeah. Anybody else want? Think about the words. Anybody? No. Think about the bill. Right. The word of God can a will influence that in us as we give ourselves to that and, and yeah. save us uh, from a life that's lived uh, apart from God's word. Mm. Uh, we can still be saved, no doubt. Not right. Questioning someone's salvation. Yeah. But do you want to walk with them forever? Do you want to point out that mm-hmm. Yeah. Or do you want to offer yourself to God? Right. Definitely. Definitely. Every single answer was correct. When you study this word soul in the Greek, it encapsulates all these aspects. It encapsulates the immaterial part. And man became a living soul. It encapsulates the aspect of the seed of emotions like both of y'all talked about, the desires. When you look at and study actually what is the soul in different theological dictionaries, it brings in the idea of the heart, the desire, the will, this consciousness, if you will, the mindfulness that I have up here. And so one of the things that is a fallacy in interpretation is a lot of times we want to look at the word soul and we want to automatically assume it's life, that it means life. That, and, and we'll get to it here, but save your souls. And automatically, every time we see soul, we want to think it's life or it's eternal life or eternal damnation. And that would be a fallacy in not understanding the full range of meanings and to understand contextually what it is. And so what does the soul mean? It means all these different things, really, when you study the word out. So what we have to really do is figure out which one contextually fits with that. It's just like the word trunk, the word spring, and other words you know of in the English language that spelled the same way but has various meanings to it. We have to understand what is the context and what definition is proper in that. And we'll get to that here in a minute, but we're looking at this verse here and it says, to say, the engrafted word can save your souls. The very first question we have to ask whenever we see save your soul is a lot of times people will say, oh, save our souls from eternal damnation. Well, we always have to ask whenever we see the Greek word sozo, save, saved from what? Okay, what are we saved from? Most times in scripture, you've heard me say it, you've heard Pastor Ken say it. If you go into Brock's class, you'll hear Brock say it. More often in Scripture, the word saved is deliverance from a physical aspect rather than an eternal uh, judgment, if you will. And so we have to ask ourselves, saved from what here? Anytime we see it. So is this a physical salvation or is this a spiritual salvation? And so we're looking at this Greek word, suke, and we're looking at this aspect of saving our souls, whether it's the immaterial part of us that is eternal, whether it's the physical life and sparing our physical life, whether it's the seed of our emotions and delivering our emotions and saving them from going into this aspect of wrath of man that doesn't work the righteousness of God, we have to look at it in context. Remember a couple weeks back, we talked about a terminology called illegitimate identity transfer. Do you remember that term? Now, I know I'm getting pretty geeky on y'all, but illegitimate identity transfer is basically taking the meaning of a word that can have multiple meanings, but taking one meaning and applying it every single time you see it. This illegitimate identity transfer, because you're ignoring the context and you're assuming it means the same thing everywhere. Illegitimate totality transfer is a little different. Illegitimate totality transfer is taking all the meanings within a Greek word and applying all of them to a particular verse. 
All right, and so for instance, in this case here in James chapter 1 verse 27, it would be similar to saying the engrafted word is able to save your eternal destiny. It is also able to save your physical life from death. It is also able to save your emotions from succumbing to the attacks and bringing on wrath, wrath of man. It's able to save all of this. And so a lot of times people will take every single meaning of a word and they will apply every meaning to a particular verse. And that's not accurate because what we have to do is we have to figure out what did the word mean to them then in the context. Because again, we don't want to say God's word says the engrafted word is able to save your eternal life when he's writing it in James. Now, we've received the gospel through the word. Yes, okay. We can understand the gospel, the word, does save us eternally when we receive it. But in James, if this is the word of God, we would do well to say, okay, what is the word of God actually saying to these people then so that we can apply it correctly? One thing I'm very cautious about when it gets time for me to stand before the judgment seat of Christ is what am I saying, not just tonight, but in every teaching and in every C4C video, if I say Jesus said this and I was completely off and maybe I didn't do my due diligence in studying and I was standing before Christ and he was like, you, you said I said that and I didn't even, he didn't even take time to even try to figure out what I said. I'm going to give an account for that because of what I'm teaching and telling people. And so with illegitimate totality transfer, we've got to make sure that we're not applying every single definition to a verse that has nothing to do with the context and what it's used for. And so here in James chapter 1, verse 27, what is he talking about that this engrafted word, the implanted word, the word of God is able to save our souls? I think there's two possibilities. I don't think it has anything to do contextually with eternal life or everlasting life. There's two things I believe it could be. First, it could be the fact that the engrafted word implanted in us can save our physical life. We can see that once we get to James chapter 5, where the prayer of a righteous man availeth much, and there's somebody that's sick, and they call the elders to pray and anoint him with oil. I do believe that's a sickness, a, a, a physical ailment that can be healed. And so we can see the aspect of saving physical life. I don't believe that's the case here, and this is why, though. Because when James is writing to these people, going through trials and persecutions and tribulations, they're already being persecuted. I don't think James would make a blanket promise to them to say, hey, the engrafted word that's inside of your heart is going to save your physical life. The apostle James just got beheaded about a decade earlier. You think, you think James, or apostle John got beheaded, you think James can make a promise that, hey, the implanted word can save your physical life? I mean, it's, it's possible, you know, if you're looking at self-inflicted issues, but going through persecution, you see the trials of Paul, Barnabas, Silas being chased around and the Jews wanting to kill him and things like that, and they had to hide Paul and lower him down in a window. It could mean that, but in this context, being the fact that he just talked about in verse number 19 and 20 that the wrath of man works not the righteousness of God, I personally think, and I might be one of the only ones in this, I believe when he's saying the engrafted word is able to save your souls, and we look at all the various nuances of what the soul is, and the seed of desires, seed of emotions, that will, if you will, that in the midst of our trials and our struggles, if we recall the word in our heart, that we treasure it in our heart, that we might not sin against God, then during those times, that word that the Spirit can conjure up for us in that moment can prevent us from working the wrath of man, is to deliver us and save us from committing that sin of losing that emotional instability, if you will. And so that's what I think he possibly is alluding to here as far as the implanted word saving your souls. Not necessarily in a physical life sense, but in this mindfulness of what's going on in the midst of their trials. And I think it fits contextually in verse number 19 and 20 as well. Then we get to these very common passages. And this is where it's kind of difficult to go ahead and try to draw up new information, especially to a lot of people that have studied this. But James writes, "...but be doers of the word and not hearers only." 
deceiving your own selves, for if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass, for he beholdeth himself and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh in the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. You see, so here we get in verse number 22 that James is saying we have to be a doer of the word, but not a hearer only. How many people have had ser- heard sermons or teachings on this or read devotions on this? Okay, only like five of us. Okay, I thought it would be more. But this is a very common passage that James says we have to do the word, not merely hear only. I love this picture because you get the cat and he looks inside the mirror and he sees what he really is, right? I look at it like this. God says you're loved. God says you're precious. God says you're here for a purpose, that you're powerful in Christ, that you're victorious over sin and able to stand in the power of God. So a lot of times, I know we'll, we'll take this verse, and rightfully so, we'll say, okay, if you're a doer of the word, or if you're a hearer only and not a doer, you're deceiving yourself because he draws this illustration. I talked about this the other day. He says he looks in a mirror in a glass, beholds his natural face, and then verse 24, he beholds himself, goes his way, and straightway forgets what manner of man he was. And so you get this picture of somebody looking in the mirror, seeing whether imperfections, whatever the case is, and then leaving and then totally forgetting, you know, the dirt that was on his face, whatever the case is. So he's saying if you're looking in the mirror and you're seeing all these things, but you're not doing anything about it, there's no purpose in that. It, it, it's why do you even look in the mirror in the first place? The mirror is there to show you, to help you, to reveal what's there, if you will. And so when he's talking about being a doer of the word, not a hearer only, realize he's not saying don't hear. Okay, we have got to hear. We have to have open ears to be able to listen, whether it's great teachers, great counselors, great friends and family members that we trust and we know that they love us. But it's not only to just hear, but it's to do. It's this aspect of when he just said in the previous verse that we need to receive with meekness. Not only the engrafted word, but I think he draws this illustration to draw that point home. We need to receive an assent to, to agree in our minds, if it's biblical and accurate, and do it with humbleness and humility. You see, the word of God is a mirror. The word of God tells us who we are. The word of God tells us what we should be, what we should do. And if we're not looking and reading in this mirror, then number one, we have no idea what we're supposed to look like or what we're supposed to do or how we're supposed to act. But then number two, we have no idea how to change, how to correct, and how to go ahead and be the light of Christ here on this earth that he had called us to be. And so, really, as far as this is concerned, being a hearer of the word, uh, we have to also be a doer because we don't want to deceive ourselves. There's so many people that, when we're looking at this intervention aspect of somebody that is an alcoholic, family's going to ruin, stuff like that, everybody's having an intervention, a lot of times those interventions at at the first shot, you know, it might seem pointless, but the person's deceiving themselves because he could hear all this stuff. He could hear all these problems. He could see all the issues. His wife could have bruises from him beating on her, and the kids have bruises from him beating on them too. And he can hear all this stuff, but if he's not doing anything, he's not fixing the relationship. He's not fixing that fellowship. And so it's this aspect of, what are we doing with what we're looking at? Are we trusting in this word? You see, he draws an analogy between or a comparison between this man looking into this particular mirror and seeing these things to a man who looketh into uh, the law of liberty, the perfect law of liberty. And this is where I want to move around because when you get up in the morning and you look in a mirror I, I imagine you're going to be up there, you're brushing your teeth, and you may be intently looking in the mirror, you know, you're brushing your teeth, make sure you get all the toothpaste crust off your lips and combing your hair. You're actively looking, right? But in the Greek, this word looketh, it brings the idea of stooping down. It's not just looking and beholding. It's this aspect, and this is where I'm going to move, it's this aspect of, I love car shows. So whenever I see nice muscle cars, I'm going to go over there and I'm going to stick my head in the window and I'm going to look at the interior. I'm going to look at the 
the headliner. And I'm going to check it out. It is 1923 T-Bucket. It's like, well, I've never seen, you know, a dash like that, the shifter, stuff like that. So I'm going to stoop down and look. The difference here is the fact that this stooping is a very intentional act that someone is wanting to do. It's not that they just happen to see a mirror, then they're beholding it, and now they're looking into it. The aspect of stooping down is you want to do this. You are actively and intentionally looking down. So he says, but whosoever looketh into the perfect law of liberty. And so that begs a good question. And this I want to open it up briefly. Uh, in, In your studies, in your, you know, listening to teachings and stuff like that, what is this perfect law of liberty? What are your thoughts? Because if we're supposed to stoop down and look into this perfect law of liberty, and by doing so, we're going to be blessed in our deed, we need to know what is this perfect law of liberty. So have you ever heard anything on it, or what are your thoughts as far as this is concerned? Ryan? I think on two different Yeah. The first was the law of Okay. So we would stoop and look into those these two laws and get a clear picture of how we were supposed to be. Okay. Okay. Anybody else? Bill. I'm gonna go somewhere else. Um, yeah. And it, it may not even relate to how I say it. Uh, the, the the law of liberty. Liberty is at least the way I understand it. We we have the the right and the ability to pursue go and to do like citizens of the United States of America. We can do that. Yeah. Because we have liberty to do that, you know. And okay. It, it tells us in scripture that we were or that we're um, no longer slaves in uh, of sin and death. Mm-hmm. That we uh, that we have freedom I think it's in Galatians five where it tells us to put aside all those things and quit following after but to pursue this this freedom that's only found in Christ. Right. And to look into this perfect law which really results in, in freedom and, and liberty we have the ability to go and to do and to accomplish the work of Christ in our lives and, and, um, and we can go in that direction and, mm-hmm. and that is, is freeing to me to me that's walking in liberty maybe yeah. that's the perfect law of liberty I haven't studied this out like you have mm-hmm. for sure but, but for me it's knowing that if, if I feel in, in, intensely in my spirit in, inside of me that God has got something for me to go and to do Right. I know that one, I will be equipped. Mm-hmm. That I'm, I'm free to go and to do. I know that He's going to move in me in in all of that, mm-hmm. and uh, I will accomplish whatever it is He has for me to, uh, to accomplish. And, and there's there's freedom in that. Yeah. Uh, maybe maybe that's what I, I certainly hope. Okay. Is going into all topics. <laughs> uh, I, I hope this relates to that. If not, then you know, hit me with it. But, uh, no, that's good. No, it's good that, you know, the freedom in Christ that we have, you know, and especially, you know, we can even look at the freedom we have in Christ as far as letting no one judge you as far as a new moon or, or, you know, whatever the case is. Paul writes about in Corinthians. Then we get Halloween coming up, and I'm I'm with Pastor Ken as far as, you know, not giving one day to the devil and going out for trick-or-treating, but uh, allowing every Christian the liberty to discern for themselves in their Christian conviction as far as what are you doing on Halloween or whatever the case is. I also look at the fact, like Ryan was saying too, a lot of times you'll hear the law of liberty being articulated as the law of Christ or the law of love, you know, in the aspect of when Jesus Christ said, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets, it's what? To love God, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so I've heard that aspect as well. And so what's interesting about this law of liberty is from what I can understand, it's somewhat undefined by James. It's undefined. It's interesting, though, in the fact that here in the book of James, James talks about the law pretty often. He talks about the law here in verse number, chapter 2, verse number 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. And then he talks about the law in chapter 4, verse number 11. Another reason why I think he's, you know, clearly writing to the Jewish people as opposed to verse number 1, uh, he's referencing a law that the Jewish people would know within their Judaistic, monotheistic religion in the Old Testament, if you will. So a lot of times people will liken this to the law of Christ, the law of love, the law of Messiah, and the fact that I liken it to what Pastor Ken said two years ago. 
in the back of my Bible, there are some quotes here that uh, people have made that have been very influential to me, you know, and one of the quotes that Pastor Ken had made back in July 8th, 2020, it was during a Life of Messiah teaching, he said, love God and do whatever you want. I mean, if you clarify that, and he did a great job clarifying it, in the fact that if you love God, in the fact that we want to seek and please God and obey God, because that's what true love is, is obedience to God and showing that we love him by obeying and fulfilling his will, then if we truly love God like that, then our desire will be to make sure his name is great. And so in that sense, we can love God in that way and then do whatever we want because what we want to do is to please and fulfill the will of God. And so I like that aspect also. I think when we're looking at the law of liberty, the key in understanding this, like I said, James, it's really somewhat undefined, if you will. The key, I believe, is in the admonishment to not be a hearer only, but to also be a doer. Because he's drawing this law of liberty, stooping and looking into the law of liberty, as somebody looking into a mirror and forgetting what they saw. So obviously the two things are somewhat similar. And so I look at it as the fact that to be able to accept with meekness what Scripture says about the being, ability, service, and correction. And the fact that when we look into the law of liberty, and we look into the engrafted word, and we look into the fact that it's going to change us if we agree with us, then we have the freedom, the ability to go ahead and please God and to do what he's asking us to do. And then in the, the, the finalization of that is he says, if we do that and we continue in it, he promises us that we will be blessed in what we are doing, in our deed, in our work. Now, it could be the aspect of, Love God and love your neighbors. It's the law of Christ, the law of Messiah, and the fact that that generates this liberty, if you will. But it's it's undefined, and this is really the best I can actually look at it. And I'm very unorthodox when I go ahead and try to study these things out. Sometimes I take unorthodox views and opinions and decisions, but that's okay. That's what makes me me. So this perfect law of liberty is just this freedom to be able to accept what's being said, to be changed by what's being said, and then to go ahead and apply that in our life freely. Because again, if he's saying that we have to remove all these things, we have the freedom to remove them or not. So we have this liberty aspect, this freedom to obey and follow or to not obey and to not follow. And so that's where I think this perfect law of liberty is this freedom that we have that God wants the best for our life. And if we want to be blessed in what we're doing, then we need to be in obedience to what the word of God is saying in our life to be changed. And so that's how I would articulate that. Before we get to the last couple of verses, I want to ask you a question. I want to open it up. Uh, what are some good things that you see people doing in the world? What are some good things people do? Good deeds. Any thoughts? What are some good things? Pastor Ken mentioned something earlier in the sermon. Christmas boxes? Okay. Chris, Operation Christmas Child is coming up with the shoe boxes. That's a good thing to do, right? You get a shoe box, put some toys in it. It's delivered to a child around the world, and they get the gospel and the discipleship program. That's definitely a good thing. What are some other things? Yeah, exactly. Ha! <laughs> What are some other things? That scared me. I'm preaching to myself. But who? Feeding homeless people. Definitely, that's a good thing to do, isn't it? You know, what else? Take care of widows and orphans. Are you jumping ahead? Yep. <laughs> Talk what? I'll talk at interfaith care as far as uh, the supplies and things. Yep. Anything else? Okay. Yeah. Mentorships. Yeah, trying to help them be a father to the fatherless type deal. Okay. Anything else? Missionaries. Okay. Let me ask you this. Can Christians do all these things? Yeah. Can an atheist do all these things? Yeah. Well, I'm just asking... Out of all the things we said that are good things, 
All the things we said, could a Christian do them? Could an atheist do them? Would we argue that there are some atheists out there that are a lot more nicer and kinder and friendlier and gentler than Christians? Yeah? I mean, there are in, in, in the world's eyes, right? So then, how would we be able to tell if a work is accepted of God or rejected of God? How would we be able to tell that? What would, or, what would be a good way to be able to tell if somebody's work is accepted or your work is accepted? Let's say your work, you're doing something. Okay. And then they're doing it for the their glory and, yeah. and their look at me, their showmanship, if you will. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Because if you get your praise in, in in public, then that that's it. You know. So, any any other thoughts? I mean, what would what would make you think that somebody's work would be accepted of God? What would be a qualifier? Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you're looking at the fact that afterwards, you know, you see God's blessing upon a ministry or an action. Anna? Mm-hmm. Do it in love. Right. Because, you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that if, that if he gives his body to be burned as a martyr, but he doesn't do it in love, he's nothing. You know, if he preaches, you know, if it's not love, he's, uh, t- you know, clanging symbol, things like that. It's got to be in love. Right. I, I don't know if this is related to that, but. Okay. Uh, I think God has left himself as witness to everybody. Mm-hmm. Okay. Have not been vandalized yet, but yeah, I'm going back to Cornelius. Yeah. The lost man, but the Bible says that he did good works and gave alms and things like this. Right. And to the point that God took recognition of that, mm-hmm. and God was actually, you know, I think put in His heart, you know, you're going to be accountable to me one day. You know, you need to somehow, you know, right. Thank God. No, yeah, under, yeah. Uh, but I think that he was searching. He was he was in a way searching for God mm-hmm. and began to do these things, and, and God took notice and said, "Okay, yeah. Peter, there's a guy down here that's going to send some guys to get you yeah. to come and share the gospel with him, right? So that he can be saved." But yeah, yeah, I think it's you know going back to your very first thing about can unsaved people or lost people do good deeds? They do it all the time. Mm-hmm. Some of the best people that I worked for in my life were lost people. Mm-hmm. And some of the worst people that I worked for in my life were saved people. Right. I yeah. Say that, but that's just the truth. Yeah. Uh, no, I totally get it. Uh, I mean, there was, uh, when I lived in Florida, the guy that I worked for, and I was sort of like a maintenance for this building. Yeah. Know, right. It wasn't a janitor, but I mean, it really, I guess it was. Uh huh. Yeah. 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 There was bubble gum on the stairs. Yeah. Never was everything good job. He did a good job. You know. He's one of those hard drivers. Yeah. I mean, he did. <coughs> yeah. By the time I got to the place that I could quit working for him. Yeah. My self-esteem was about to get up that <laughs> Oh, I imagine <laughs> all of ours would be. I would have quit long, long time before that. But then yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The reason why I ask these questions is because, okay, so we get this idea in the society as far as what is a good work, what is a good deed, what is a good action that is beneficial to the community and to people around. Feeding the homeless, great action. Autog and interfaith care, great action. You know, doing all these things is great stuff. Then I ask the question, what makes this particular action uh, approved of God. 
And that's really where the rubber meets the road. The only actions that are approved of God are those that are done in faith of God because we have to do it in faith and to please God, not receiving the glory and honor of ourselves. And so if we do it with any other motivation, it's not accepted of God. And that's why I asked the question, how many atheists can do all these things? They can do all these things, but are they accepted of God, those works? No, because they're not doing it for God. They're not doing it in faith of God. So you can have a Christian and an atheist, both feeding the homeless. And the atheist could be like, hey, out of the goodness of my heart, I do want to feed the homeless, right? And the Christian would be like, hey, out of the goodness of my heart and to honor and please God in faith of God, I want to feed the homeless, right? God's going to honor that Christian. And the reason why I bring this up is because when we get to these next few verses, James is going to start talking about pure religion. And I bring this up because there's so many times within the church and within teaching that we're going to hear and we're going to read that people say, by their fruits you will know them. Matthew chapter 7, verse number 20, right? And so I see if the person claims they're a Christian, says they're a Christian, and they're doing good works, they're a Christian. Well, guess what? I have no idea if that guy was lying to me about being a Christian. You have no idea if I'm a Christian or not, do you? Only reason why you think I'm a Christian is because I tell you the testimony on how I received the eternal life that Christ offers me. It's nothing about my works that can prove that I'm a Christian. The only thing that can give you surety, if you will, loosely of my being a Christian in the family of God is by my profession of faith. And that's going to be a big thing because a lot of times when we read books, we read devotionals, we go to Linganer.com or we're reading the Gospel Coalition or any of these other sites, a lot of times they're going to attach works to prove the genuineness of faith. Or a lot of times they're going to attach works as enduring in the faith so to have final salvation. And James is going to more or less obliterate that here in these two verses when he says, if any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but he but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. More or less, what James is saying is, I, I imagine in that day too, they're going to have a lot of these religious leaders in the day that they have all the looks, all the piety, all the external showiness that they're Christians. And they could be Christians, but they could be Christians that have all this pious works that they can't control their tongue, that they're gossiping once they get behind closed doors with their other religious pious friends saying, oh, did you see this woman over here? She dropped in two mites. You know, huh? I know she got five the other day. You know, and so if they can't control their tongue then he's saying that that's not pure religion. And so he's not necessarily questioning their salvation or their eternal standing. What he's talking about here in religion is their observance or their discipline or their actions upon a religion, if you will. And so in other words, the tenets within Christianity, you know, by all this, all men will know my disciples if you have love for one another, right? And to forgive each other as Christ forgave us. In fact, Ken talked about that this morning. So there are tenets, there are disciplines within religion, within Christianity, that we should be doing. And James is saying here that if any man seems to be religious, they do all these external things, but they can't even control their tongue. Their religion is vain. What does that mean? It means their religious works and observances, and at that time... They would have been doing the Lord's Supper. They may have still been keeping feasts and things like that, not under the law, but because they were Jewish, and it's going to take a while for them to have to, not have to, but be willing to freely say, okay, I don't have to keep Rosh Hashanah anymore. I don't have to keep Sukkot anymore or any of these things. Maybe they want to, but the freedom they have in Christ, it might take a while for them to say, okay, I have the freedom not having to do it, but I want to do it. And so now if they want to do it, they're keeping the Feast of Tabernacles or they're keeping the Feast of Trumpets and they're going through all the religious observations or observances, ceremonies, and traditions. If they're not even controlling their tongue, then he's saying that their religion, their piety, their acts are not being accepted to God. And the fact that they can do all these things, but 
God's still not pleased with them. We can read this in two specific passages in the Old Testament. Hosea chapter number 6, verse number 6, and 1 Samuel chapter 15, 22. Basically, you remember the, the aspect with Saul. When uh, the prophet, I believe it was Samuel, came to him and he said, do you think the Lord has great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? It is better, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. So prophet Samuel to Saul said, I don't care about all your sacrifices. God cares about obedience and you're not obeying God. And so you can make all these sacrifices in the world, but if you're not being obedient to what you know God is asking you to do, these sacrifices are useless for you. Same thing in Hosea chapter 6, verse number 6. For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. A lot of times within religion, we want to look at our works and we want to say, okay, I went to church, check. I did this, check. I gave out an invite card, check. But man, if, if we're just running our mouth, you know, with our friends or our spouse, whatever the case, case is, you think God is pleased with that? No, he's not pleased with that. And this is what he's getting across, that our religion is useless. Our observance in what we're doing as far as rituals, if you will, and traditions and observing the feasts, it's all useless. You can make these sacrifices all day long, but if you're not obeying, it's not accepted of God. Jesus said, I believe it was Jesus that said, before you go ahead, if you have a trespass against somebody, you need to ask for forgiveness. He says, before you bring your offering to the temple, you go ahead and make things right. You make things right first, and then you bring the sacrifices. And this is the same concept. So when James says this religion is vain, it means not Christianity. It means the observance, the traditions, the sacrifices, just our outward religion, if you will, is vain if we're not doing the basic things God is telling us to do. He also tells us what is pure religion in undefiled. He says to visit the fatherless and widows in their afflictions. Arnold Frontbaum points out the fact that in the day uh, that this is written, and even in the Old Testament period back then, that these were the lowest classes within the Jewish society, the widows and the fatherless. These are the ones that most people took took uh, uh, advantage of, they extorted. A lot of times they had no sustenance, they had no substance, they had no wealth, they were just left alone. And so these are the people that James is saying, you really want to know what pure religion is? Here's an example. To visit the fatherless and the widows in their afflictions. To visit the people and to take care of the people when they have a need, to take care of them when you know they can't even take care of yourself to not expect anything in return. And oh, by the way, they're in the midst of persecution too and trials and they got their own struggles. They're not necessarily getting a free pass, but James is trying to remind them, don't neglect what God is asking you to do in the midst of your trials. And we'll talk about that again. Pure religion is undefi- and undefiled is to visit the fatherless and the widows and to keep himself unspotted from the world. In other words, this isn't talking about being, where's Waldo? Hey, where's the Christian? He's not spotted. I can't find any Christians out here. He's saying to go ahead and make sure that the world is not influencing you, but make sure that you are influencing the world. And that we can go around our days. A lot of us, a lot of y'all work in very secular places. I'm glad that I work here at the church, you know, but it's a big difference from the military because military, very secular place there. And there's a lot of opportunities for me to be stained, if you will, with the filth of wickedness, especially working around maintainers on aircraft and and just some of the stuff that they do. And they say that it could tarnish me, if you will, if I start slowly becoming like that, talking like that, adopting some ideals, things of that nature. And he's saying pure religion, stuff that is pleasing to God, is also to keep yourself unspotted from the world. Not to be hidden from the world, but to make sure that you're not being changed by the secular world. That's what pleases God. And so when we come to church and we go worship every Sunday morning, and we do this corporately, I think we really need to think about, am I stained from the world? Have I just spent the last six days living like an atheist, living like a secularist? And now I'm coming here trying to corporately worship God together? Deceiving ourselves. Not in an eternal relationship standpoint because we're positionally saved. 
But in a fellowship standpoint with God, if we have so much in the world affecting us, and then we want to come here and try to worship God Sunday morning, we're not fooling anybody. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. We're deceiving ourselves, is what James just said. In the end, what is the theological principle that James is getting across here, and how do we apply it? We have got to hear the word, i.e. read scripture and understand and listen to the impulse and the conviction of the spirit. We have to hear the word, then do the word. That's how we will be blessed in what we do. God does not care about our religious observances if we do not care about obeying his disciplines. If we're not obeying God and listening to God and doing what he tells us to do and living the way that we know he's telling us to live, we come to church every Sunday morning. God doesn't need you to worship. God wants you and I to worship. There's a big difference between that. And so we have to care about how we're living for him because one day you and I, are, we're going to be standing before the judgment seat of Christ and he's going to say, oh, all those weeks you went to worship me corporately on Sunday morning, but then Monday you just live, went out there, you got drunk, you beat your wife, did all these things, and then you want to come back and worship me again Sunday morning? That's a mockery. I took three nails and a crown of thorns for you. And you want to keep living like that. You're saved. You're still in the kingdom. Here you go. Here's everything I died for you, and you, you received that. That's why we got to realize we're not serving for salvation. We're serving Jesus because of salvation. There's a huge difference in that. And that's the freedom we get. You see, in our trials, in our struggles, they do not exempt us from living how Christ expects us to live in recognition of what he's done. It doesn't exempt the Jewish people in the day of James, their trials and struggles. It does not exempt them from working the wrath of man to doing these things. And in the same vein, what you and I go through, the trials and struggles of our life, it doesn't exempt us from living how we're supposed to be. But it should be able to allow this brighter light to shine, if you will, through the struggles we're going through and to still live correctly according to the principles of Scripture. St. Francis of Sisi is one of the quotes that I love. I think it's, no amount of darkness can extinguish the light of a single candle. And so it doesn't matter how dark the world gets. It doesn't matter what's going on in your life or mine. The struggles and the trials we're going through, yes, they are burdensome. If we want God to hear us in our prayers, the psalmist says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, guess what? the Lord will not hear me. And so if I'm living like a cussing sailor every day of the week, and then all of a sudden, oh God, deliver me out of this trial, maybe you're in that trial because God is trying to teach you. Maybe he's trying to teach me. And so we have got to realize that the trials and struggles are opportunities, not obstacles. Opportunities to live our faith actively, to have a faith that is useful to people to have our faith uh, perform good works so that people can see our good works and what? Glorify our Father in heaven. There's no greater light that's able to be shown than the light that's in the midst of the darkness. That's when the light shines the brightest. And so with the book of James here at the end of this first chapter, he set it up. These are Christians. They're going through some really bad times trying to rebuild their lives. And he's trying to tell them, I know you're going through struggles. You know, blessed are you when you're going through these trials because it produces patience, endurance, grit, all these characteristics, all these traits. But be careful because in the midst of your trials, you're going to have the temptation to say this is of God. But remember, God can't be tempted with evil. Neither does he tempt any man with evil. Be careful of that. And oh, by the way, you need to make sure you are quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger. Why? Because the anger of man doesn't work the righteousness of God. And therefore, you have got to lay apart and remove all filthiness and all superfluity of naughtiness. Remove all that and receive with meekness the engrafted word that is able to save your souls. And then he goes into being doers of the word, not hearers only. And so James is telling those Christians, this is, your trials don't exempt you, but your trials give you a very great opportunity to show the light of Christ. 
and to continue developing these godly Christ-like characteristics such as this patience written about in verse number five. Amen. And so I don't know what everybody's going through, but if you go through trials, obstacles, uh, consider them as opportunities to go ahead and develop endurance and then to look for ways to go ahead and reach a world that's very dark that needs the light of Christ for his glory and not our own. Amen. And God, I thank you again for this evening, and thank you for the relevance of the book of James in our life today. And I know I went a little long tonight, Lord, but I just pray that the Spirit would just encourage us, convict us, reach us, teach us, and just use us this week to be a light in the midst of this world. Pray you forgive us when we do go ahead and receive the spots of the world in the secular society that we live in. But Lord, we're thankful for your forgiveness that you offer freely just through asking. And Lord, just help us to change and get closer to you in fellowship by practically applying what we know your word is telling us. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.